Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the review show for episode 10 on the latest from Theresa May's Brexit negotiations. I'm Connor Pope, Deputy Editor of Progress, and I'm with Progress Director Richard Angel. Together we'll be looking back over the Brexit vote in Parliament this week and responding to some of your comments. On Wednesday night, MPs took back control for the country and reasserted the supremacy of British Parliament's sovereignty. Tory MP Dominic Grieve put forward an amendment to give MPs a final say on the eventual Brexit deal and, with the help of a few Tory rebels, Labour put the future of the country first and voted in favour of the motion. The vote was the first big defeat for the government since losing its majority in June, the election which was supposed to cement Theresa May's power and give her total control over Brexit proceedings. The Daily Mail front page, which greeted the snap election, which proclaimed, crush the saboteurs. Seems a long time ago now, doesn't it, Richard? It does. And the Daily Mail are back with another one of their kind of hateful front pages. Proud of yourselves, it says, about the dozen Tories that rebelled. It says, self-consumed malcontents pulling the rug from under the EU negotiators, betraying their leader party, 17.4 million Brexit voters, and most damning of all, increasing the possibility of a Marxist in number 10. So the Daily Mail are annoyed, which means that lots of people did a good thing this week. (laughs) I think it also shows the point, and this was made very well by Hilary Armstrong, the former chief whip, in the edition that we did in September, is that when Labour takes the right, strong and principled position in Parliament, it pulls the rest of the Parliament in the right direction. So other MPs come with us from other parties. And crucially, it then means that the debate on where Brexit goes is not between this kind of fantasy land, which is some form of Singapore, between a kind of Switzerland light or a Canada plus, but between where we need to be, which is a Norway plus, where we have our own arrangement, but we're in the single market and in the customs union, and respecting the, the will of the voters, able to reform migration within the single market and the four freedoms, which you can eminently do. Again, an issue covered in that brilliant edition of the magazine. But crucially, Labour is through and through the party that knows that cooperation is the best way to see these things forward. So well done, Labour, for doing it. And I think it shows that when Jeremy Corbyn listens to the crowd at Glastonbury rather than the kind of comrade Benites of old, we do the right thing by the country, the party, the membership and our futures. And it was the uh, tightest of margins as well. I think it was 309 votes to 
305 in the end. Obviously, Labour did take a, a really strong line on it. Eloise Todd, who is the CEO at Best for Britain, who was on the show earlier this week, she was tweeting her thanks to Keir Starmer that Labour had taken such a strong line on it. She also said that the moment that the opposition teller took his place on the outside of the dispatch box signalling that the government had lost was her second favourite moment of 2017 after the exit poll on June the 8th. So it was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> feel her like, she definitely felt it was awesome. There was a kind of fist pump that went with Eloise, I'm sure, when she saw that happening. But in the end, it was only uh, about 12 Tory MPs who broke the whip and did the right thing by rebelling, which... On the one hand, you think, well, that's, that's not very many, actually, is it? And actually, it was the 250-odd Labour MPs who voted for the amendment that really made it happen. But then, on the other hand, it just reminds you how big a deal it was that Theresa May lost that majority, how very little rebellion in her own party will see the government defeated, and how strong a line Labour can take and actually force things to change in Parliament despite being on the opposition benches. It's a shame that we're not taking that strong a line on some other things. There was um, another amendment on trying to keep Britain in the single market after Brexit this week that Labour did not support, although it did have support from about 30 Labour MPs, including Alison McGovern. McGovern, But actually, my favourite tweet from Wednesday night, I think, was Nigel Farage, who um, said that his contempt for career politicians knows no bounds. This is Nigel Farage, who has been an MEP since I was eight years old. (laughs) Irony is lost whenever he is engaging with and gets on his moral high horse about these things. And there was some good news from the Republic of Ireland this week. The likely legislation on legalising abortion ahead of their referendum was confirmed, which was greeted warmly by lots of Repeal the Eighth campaigners there. But actually, it was an unexpected possible referendum in Northern Ireland that caught your eye. On Thursday this week... Owen Smith, the Shadow Northern Ireland Secretary, has a story in The Times that he is considering that under direct rule there would be a referendum in Northern Ireland on both marriage equality and abortion to give the people of Northern Ireland the say rights that are enjoyed, obviously, in the rest of the United Kingdom. Because currently Northern Ireland, of course, doesn't have same-sex marriage, despite the rest of the country. And it also doesn't have access to free and legal abortions. Mm -hmm. Stella Creasy had an amazing change to the law earlier in the year, which means that women of Northern Ireland who come to England and use our NHS now get those abortions for free, but they still don't get the right to have those in Northern Ireland. And of course, big changes needed in the Republic of Ireland. I'm on the Labour Party Irish Society executive. We've been campaigning and we'll be out there to repeal the 8th with people. But the difference between the Republic of Ireland, where these are constitutional matters and therefore you have to have a referendum under their system to change them, and Northern Ireland, where there are legislative issues, where there is a failure of leadership, is quite different. And so in Northern Ireland on equal marriage, they knew they had to have a referendum, they took on the challenge and they won it. In Australia, where of course they got the same result, a brilliant result, and they won it, that came about because of that failure of leadership and the LGBT community did not want to have to have a ballot because you should not have to ask your neighbour to be treated as an equal citizen and have the right to love people. And the idea that Labour is entertaining a referendum in Northern Ireland on these two issues, I think is really wrong, potentially quite damaging. This divides families, communities, these unnecessary divisions. Every time there is a campaign on this, somebody will take up the no to change position. And in doing so on equal marriage, you've seen people do kind of Section 28 style attacks that somehow the gays are out to recruit your children and warp their minds. And even worse, the kind of homophobic tropes that you see that somehow 
basically gays are paedophiles. And that comes into the public discourse, neither of which are welcome, in my opinion, and Labour shouldn't be entertaining those things. If the parties of Northern Ireland cannot get their act together, then the UK Parliament should legislate for Northern Ireland. There is a majority in public opinion in Northern Ireland for marriage equality, and there is a majority in the Assembly. It's just that the DUP use this system that was put around in the Good Friday Agreement of a petition of concern where they can basically stop any piece of legislation. Now, the matter is slightly more complicated on abortion rights. But imagine having a referendum on abortion rights. I mean, just from my student politics days, when these things came up on campus, you saw some very unpleasant people and people scream at you for being pro-killing babies and terrible things. You know, the Republic of Ireland will have to have this a referendum because it's constitutional. The idea we would entertain this when it's because of a failure of leadership in our legislators, I think is wrong. And Labour It says in the story that Owen Smith is considering this. I think this consideration should move on pretty quickly. Now, a few weeks ago, we had uh, Liz Kendall on the podcast on the... We did. It was episode eight, I think, on wealth inequality. And she made a brilliant argument then that the best way to reduce inequality in the country is to focus investment on early years education and care. Um, I know it's an argument that Shadow Education Secretary Angela Rayner has been making both privately and publicly for a while, including on the Today programme this week. She did, yeah. And that was because the government published a document a few days ago that estimates that since 2010, £650 million has been cut from early years investment. It's absolutely ludicrous. It really is. It, you know, these stealth cuts are coming about to our public services. And they're, you know, the idea that our kids were responsible for the crash and should have to pay for it is obviously palpably ridiculous. But these are things that you don't ever come back from. The money you spend pre-seven determines almost all of the rest of a young person's life. And you don't get those formative years back. It's not like when you mess up your GCSEs or your A-levels and you go back and redo them at some point. If you don't get that chance in life to learn to read, to learn to count, basic language skills you are playing catch-up for the rest of your lives and you know the Tories used to be a party of meritocracy and that basic starts with those first few years and it should not be down to whether you have a parent that can read to you or whether you live in a nice wealthy part of this country we have to provide a basic education for everybody and it's got to start at two and three Tessa Jowell and what she did on Shore Start with Bev Hughes and other people in that last Labour government was the most transformative part of what we did in office. And in many ways, it's one of the things the public most supported. And the Tories have had to make those cuts by stealth. Shame on them. Oh, it was something that we got quite a few tweets about during the week. And I'm pleased that we had Liz on a couple of weeks ago to make this argument then. And I know that the clip of her making that argument has been doing the rounds as well, which I'm pleased about. You should look out for that. But something else that listeners responded to this week was Richard's interview with Andy Burnham about his digital summit in Manchester last week. Toby Dickinson tweeted that Alison McGovern was right to use the example on the podcast earlier this week of Northumberland to highlight lack of digital infrastructure. The challenge there is greater than that, though. 10% of residential properties in Northumberland National Park don't have mains electricity or mains gas, which I had no idea about that. That seems remarkable in this day and age. Well, it is. The assumption is that the tech revolution is equalising our society, that somehow it's pluralist, everyone can be involved, you can all have a Twitter account, everyone's opinions are kind of equal. You'd have to go and kind of earn your retweets with the strength of your argument. But of course, that's not true. What is actually happening is that tech is opening many of these divides because for the people who just do not have that access to electricity, let alone, well, they clearly have access to electricity, but not mains electricity, <laughs> but, you know, let alone broadband, etc. 
it's just going to have an exponential effect on our young people that start in life that you have, your digital literacy, which is linked to so many of your other skills. And this has got to be a really high priority because one of the things we kind of modernizers say is that, you know, you can't stop the world and get off from these changes. But for some people, they can't get on. And that must be a challenge that we seek to overcome. We're also alerted to the fact that ex-Prime Minister of Estonia, Tumas Hendrik, won an award this week for World Leader in Cybersecurity awarded by Boston Global Forum. This is after, at the Digital Summit, there was an Estonian MP there. But actually, it's quite interesting. A lot of these smaller European countries are really leading the way on a lot of digital and tech things. So in in terms of cybersecurity in Estonia, they are kind of incredible, a world leader in this. And there are other... Partly because they have to be, because of course their neighbour Russia is so aggressive Mm. online about these things. And that was one of the things that was interesting about Arto, who who spoke at Andy's conference, was that he was very aware of how aggressive Russia was being on its border. And they therefore have to be ahead of the game on this stuff. That is interesting. I know that other European countries are really leading the way in terms of public Wi-Fi and things like that. And things that I think will actually become pretty standard for major countries over the next decade or so that they have now, which I just think is a really interesting facet. And the public are basically demanding these things, the assumption, and particularly if you watch a child use technology, I find it fascinating that you see very, very young children who can use their parents' iPads and iPhones as if they are their own, and then they see a TV and they go up to it and they swipe the screen, expecting it to be interactive with them, and it's just not. And this kind of like palpable demand from them that the world interact with them in this modern way, and it's quick and it's fast and it's informative. On the flip side of that, actually, there's a Policy Network pamphlet on cybersecurity and cyber fraud recently that I read. There's a couple of really interesting things in that. The first is that actually we believe that crime has been falling in this country. And actually, if you analyse cyber fraud in a different way, actually, a lot of crime has just been moving online. And weren't you saying that young people are more susceptible to this because they think, I'm all right online, I know what I'm doing? That's exactly right. Young people are far more likely to be victims of cyber fraud than older people. You would obviously assume that it would be the other way around, but actually older people are just much more aware that they could be a victim of it than younger people are. And I just thought that was a fascinating thing in this pamphlet. But it is the thing we've got to keep remembering in this thing is that some people are going to be lights ahead of others, but we have got to make sure that it is a thing that engineers social equality, not inhibits it. Right, we should move on to the pub quiz question, I think. So, Connor, what was your pub quiz question this this week? So this week it was, what links the Star Wars film Return of the Jedi, the third in the original trilogy, to the resignation of Nye Bevan as health secretary in 1951. So uh, this had lots of people stumped, didn't it? There yeah, was, no, no. There, yeah. there was a slightly kind of... Um... Obviously, there has been a, a lot of attention on Star Wars this week as a, a new film is out. I know plenty of people, certainly in Westminster... Political pub quiz question. Well done. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, people were so excited about the political pub quiz question that they went to midnight showings of the film. <laughs> um, to work I, out what the connection was. And I know Alison McGovern, she's a big Star Wars fan. She was very excited about this question. She couldn't get it right. But Matthew Doyle, I think, was the one person... in-house nerd. He, like me, has been to see Luke Skywalker's house off the coast of County Kerry. We were both there last summer. At the uh, same time? A couple of weeks apart. Is this something we need to tell Steph? (laughs) This was an office trip. But no, the link between the two is that the Return of the Jedi director, Richard Marquand, was the son of the Labour MP, Hilary Marquand, 
who became health secretary after Nye Bevan resigned. Well, well, who knew? What I'm, a small world. That I definitely didn't know. But, uh, <laughs> but if somebody was going to know, it was going to be Matthew Doyle, who has, as his advent calendar this year, the Lego Star Wars advent <laughs> calendar. I know this because I got it for him because I knew it would please him <laughs> much. And it really has. It's like the best present I think he's ever had. Anyway, we've run out of time there. But do remember to send in any comments and questions on any of the topics that we've spoken about today. Do leave a review rate and subscribe on iTunes and Progressive Britain will be back on Tuesday next week with Alison McGovern. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast with Connor Pope and Richard Angel. The music is When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And this episode was produced by Carolyn Crampton. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.